Please be advised this podcast contains mature language and subject matter that includes descriptions of sexual assault. By the spring of 2010, Tim DeSanto had built a pretty good life for himself. He was happily married, had two great kids, and a successful career as an artist and a designer. He'd become known for a redesign he'd done of his own house. It started to get a lot of buzz, like, wow, this Tim DeSanto did this house, and it's amazing. And so people literally at the open house started asking, who did the house? And my wife said it was my husband, and they said, what he designed for me? And so I started picking up jobs from that. He'd even done a stint on an HGTV show called Design Star. I was the guy who could do most of the tasks. Like, we need to lay tile. I can lay tile. You know, we need to, to do this. Well, I can weld. You know, like, I, so, so I became the Renaissance guy by default. Say, like, Tim's a Renaissance guy. He can do anything. So when Tim decided to create a blog, he figured he'd call it Renaissance Guy. He promised the blog would take readers on a journey from the heartland to L.A. and everywhere in between. He wrote about home remodels, video shoots, travel, pretty much whatever he felt like. And the idea was that I would just do kind of lifestyle. When I saw cool buildings, when I would comment on things like that, whether it was furniture, things like that, and I would make comments on that blog about that. So at this point, you're probably wondering, what does this have to do with Conrad Mainwaring? Well, back in the early 70s, Tim's dad got a visiting professor job at a university in England. Conrad was a student at that university, and he got to know Tim's whole family. Tim and Conrad even did some workouts together. A few years later, when he was 17, Tim was back living in the States and training to be an elite skier. And one day, his dad came home and said he had some good news. Conrad was coming to visit. The most exciting part for Tim was that since they last saw each other, Conrad had become an Olympian. Of course, I didn't know anyone that had been in the Olympics. So here's this guy who my dad thinks highly of who was in the Olympics. He's going to visit us. You know, so it's a celebrity. You're like, wow, okay, great. So Conrad and Tim started working out together again. But this time, Tim said, Conrad molested him. He said that once, it happened inside his own home, while his parents slept in the next room. You know, we're talking, I guess. And he's like, you know, let's, let's rub your legs down. Let's do, you know, take care of that, whatever. And he gets out some stuff, you know, some balm kinds of things, whatever, that I remember being intense, you know, and... And he's like working my, rubbing my legs, working my legs. And then slowly, as you can imagine, slowly he starts brushing me, you know, like he's brushing my genitals very, very minimally, so minimally that you're thinking, uh, you know, yeah, it's nothing. It's nothing. The story Tim told us, it's the same story everyone else told us too. How he bought into the idea that this was about training. He saw Conrad as a trusted coach, a mentor. So as Tim grew older, had a family, and built his career, he didn't give Conrad much thought. Not even in 2009, when he took a trip to England. My mother was aging, was elderly, and she had really enjoyed living in England. And so uh, I ended up taking my mother over to England. A few months later, Tim blogged about his trip. He wrote about a magical evening in Cambridge and posted some playful photos of him and his mom. That was about it just kind of goofing around and saying silly things on this blog. Um, and nobody, I didn't pay any attention to it. I probably didn't look at the blog for a year, but I left it up. Really, the blog was just a place for Tim to keep his friends and family updated on his life. 
It wasn't widely read. And if anybody was looking at it, virtually nobody left a comment. But then, out of the blue, more than a year after Tim posted about his trip to England, an old friend of his chimed in. Tim, speaking of the UK, I have some Conrad Mainwaring gossip for you. Some Conrad Mainwaring gossip? For ESPN, I'm your host, Mike Kessler. You're listening to The Running Man. During the last episode, we brought you inside the world of Conrad Mainwaring and his secret squad. This time, we tell you how four decades of accusers found each other and decided something had to be done. I just couldn't believe it when I discovered this. The world isn't what you thought it was. The world is a bad place. And um, it's kind of like losing your innocence. Everybody in my family was just like, oh my God, this is still happening and he's out there. And I told him, I was like, I- I'm, I- I'm going to go after this guy. This is episode three, The Blog. Here's something to keep in mind about Conrad. We mentioned it before, but it bears repeating. In a day and age when you can find pretty much anything and anyone through a basic Google search, Conrad was a virtual ghost. This was true even as recently as 2011, even though he'd been to the Olympics, and even though by that point, he'd coached a few high-level athletes, including Felix Sanchez, an Olympic gold medalist. Sanchez, by the way, told us he wasn't a victim. Despite all those things, Conrad was still nowhere to be found on the internet. But then, that comment popped up on Tim DeSanto's blog, and he never could have imagined where it would lead. I was really, really uh, shocked. By the time the comment appeared on Tim's blog in 2011, Conrad had been in L.A. for more than two decades. He'd become a fixture around the UCLA track, where he trained dozens of squad members. A lot of the guys who trained with Conrad, they told us he brought them back to his apartment for his so-called physiotherapy sessions. Sessions, they say, that would often lead to abuse. Though again, no one really spoke up or even questioned it. Like Tim DeSanto and so many others, they just didn't see it as abuse. As one former UCLA student told us, It wasn't uncomfortable for me most of the time because I kind of, I believed the lessons, I guess, really. I believed that it had some sort of benefit in my life. So, I want to step back for a minute. Before I get into how Tim's blog changed everything, I should address something that's come up a lot during our reporting. A lot of people have asked us, how did this go on for so long? And they've also asked, why don't these young men, especially the ones who were 18, 19, even 20 years old at the time, why didn't they stop training with Conrad? One thing to keep in mind is the cultural stigma around sexual abuse. If you think it's bad now, Imagine it back in the 70s and 80s, especially when it came to sexual abuse of boys and young men. One of the men we spoke with, a lawyer in Maine named Michael Waxman, says he was just 13 when Conrad first abused him at Camp Greylock. I think even though I probably could not have articulated it back then, I think I felt some shame, you know, and not just because I thought, what, what did I do to bring this on? But, but even the notion that I had been sexually connected with a man. I mean, this was 40 years ago. Things were very different back then. And I didn't have any problem with people who were out and were homosexuals. But, but it was still, I mean, we all remember the words that were you know, thrown around the, uh, the schoolyard. I mean, it was... As a, powerfully as Michael and other men can explain really what changed. went through their minds when they were with Conrad, 
I thought it would be helpful for you to hear from an expert about how shame can be used to manipulate. My name is Dr. Veronique Vallier. I'm a forensic and clinical psychologist. In my practice, I treat victims of sexual assault and other interpersonal violence, as well as offenders. Dr. Vallier has testified in some high-profile cases, like the Bill Cosby trial. She told us it's not unusual for an abuser to get away with it for decades, especially when the victims are young boys. That seems to be fairly status quo. I worked with one offender of boys exactly in the age range of 12 to 15, and he was able to name 96 different victims, and zero of his victims had ever disclosed their abuse. He was literally caught abusing one by law enforcement, and that's how he was uh, prosecuted, not because victims came forward. We asked her why it was so difficult for the young men and boys to recognize what was happening to them. We all think we should be able to see betrayal or manipulation coming. And it's easy to see it in hindsight. It's not easy to see it in the process. And so these victims were all smart. They were all smart, and that's what he exploited because he gave them alternative explanations for something unbelievable, something that no one wants to see. Dr. Vallier said these experiences can add to the confusion some teenagers already feel around sexuality. And she says that confusion can lead to shame, shame that male abusers of boys know they can exploit. She also said belonging to something unique, like the squad, could be intoxicating. Joining a team or becoming part of a fraternity or belonging to somebody with status is, is very um, attractive. You're, you're part of a secret special society with those special benefits. And so, with few exceptions, the guys on Conrad's squad didn't say a word. They felt like they couldn't talk about their alleged abuse, not to police or teachers or counselors, and definitely not to each other. And that's how Conrad stayed so far under the radar for so long, until that random comment appeared on Tim DeSanto's blog. It was 2011, and Tim had just seen this odd comment about some Conrad Mainwaring gossip. Right away, he reached out to his old friend to see what he was talking about. Tim's friend wrote back. Hey, um, I wanted to let you know that I saw Conrad at the UCLA track with a group of young boys training. Tim didn't really know what to make of this information. He still hadn't really processed what had happened to him or what might be happening to these kids at UCLA. There was a big part of him that still believed in Conrad, still thought he'd become a better athlete and even a better person because of the training. So not long after Tim reached out to his friend, he basically forgot about the blog. But then after two years, totally out of the blue, someone else posted another comment. This time it was someone Tim didn't know. April 2nd, 2013. I noticed a reference here to Conrad Mainwaring. He has abused many boys and young men, some of whom are my friends. And there it was. Out in the open, online, for anyone to see, if they could find it. Conrad Mainwaring, abuser of boys and young men. Soon, more comments trickled in. One remark would lead to another, and that one to another, and on and on. 
Before long, Tim's personal blog had transformed into a public record of Conrad's abuse. Here's Tim reading just a few of them. November 30, 2014. He got me too in Syracuse. I just flashed on it today. He was a crafty SOB. I'm surprised it has not caught up with him yet. June 30, 2015. I had the unfortunate distinction of being molested twice and also brainwashed by Conrad Mainwaring. September 23, 2015. I was so disturbed to read this blog and learn of so many people who have been abused by him. How has he got away with it for so long? After training with Conrad, a lot of these guys have been struggling their whole lives with a host of issues. Trouble with intimacy, depression, addiction, or all of the above. And sometimes, when they were in a dark or unsettled place, or even just feeling a little curious, they'd wonder, whatever happened to Conrad? And so, they'd Google him. For years, those searches yielded nothing. Until now. Imagine what it must have been like for these men. So many of them had buried their experiences for decades. Others just figured they were the only one. They suffered in silence and shame. And then, this blog appeared. And they all realized... I'm not the only one. You're not the only one. It was no longer on my own. I'm not alone. Tim couldn't wrap his head around it. So what I realized was happening was this blog I wasn't paying any attention to had been this uh, spot, I don't know what you'd call it, this gathering place for victims. Because anyone, there was very little on the web uh, about Conrad Mainwaring. The blog also changed the way Tim remembered his own abuse. Prior to that, I didn't have a, a negative perception of Conrad Mainwaring. But after he read those comments, it all came flooding back. When I read that, I, it almost as if uh, it would be like uh, a movie scene where they are trying to depict memory and they show like, you know, all these images. That's kind of what it felt like. I remember looking at that. And the first image was the 17-year-old incident in my sister's bedroom. Soon, the squad members started emailing and calling each other, offering support. Some of the men had confided in their wives, but a lot of them left the details out. Now, though... They had people to talk to who knew exactly what they'd been through. It's such an odd experience that if you didn't have it, you know, you don't get it. You really don't get it. And if you did experience it, you, you no description, nothing needed. Like, yeah, I was there too. I get that. Word kept getting around. Guys from Camp Greylock, Syracuse and Colgate, Caltech and UCLA, they all started to connect. And the more they talked to each other, the more they understood what needed to happen. They needed to stop Conrad. Now. Remember Andrew Zenoff, the guy who told me about this story in the first place? He's the one whose brother, Victor, died in that hiking accident back in 1980, just a few days after he told his mom about being abused by Conrad at Camp Greylock. The Zenoffs never stopped thinking about Victor, and they never stopped thinking about Conrad either. We'd be together at a family dinner or celebrating my brother's birthday or honoring the anniversary of his death, and you know, the subject would come up, of course, and we would talk about it. And so, every now and then over the years, Andrew would Google Conrad's name. But he always came up empty. Until one day, in 2016, he was finishing up at the office, staring at his computer, and he decided to try again. I just couldn't believe it when I discovered this. There was Tim's blog and all its comments. Right away, Andrew called his family. I'm like, you won't believe what I just found. And, of course, everybody 
my family was just like, oh my God, this is still happening and he's out there. And I told him, I was like, I'm going to go after this guy. At the right moment, I'm going to go after him. That moment, that's what led to Andrew calling me. So many of these guys were now in their 40s and 50s. He figured they couldn't possibly press charges against Conrad. But Andrew thought that if I dug into the story, if Conrad got exposed in a more public way, then maybe some sort of justice could be served. The first thing he did was point me to the blog. I couldn't believe what I found. All these men, all saying they'd been abused by the same guy. I read comments from an accuser in England who said Conrad abused him when he was just 16. This would have been before the 76 Olympics, when Conrad was in his early 20s. I read comments from guys who said they were abused in the 70s at Camp Greylock, and in the 80s at Syracuse, and at Colgate, and the early 2000s at UCLA. There was even a guy who said he was abused as recently as 2013. I thought, has this really been going on for 40 years? And what if it still is? Some of the men posted comments that left me stunned and wanting to know more. October 18th, 2015. Conrad stole so much from us all. September 27th, 2017. Dozens, likely hundreds of young men and boys have been victimized by this incarnation of evil. April 13th, 2018, I was abused for several years by this despicable predator. It started when I was a minor, only 14 years old at Camp Greylock. Some of the guys even added their phone numbers and emails in case other victims wanted to get in touch. So I started reaching out. I was basically cold calling these guys. They didn't know me, but because I knew Andrew and knew about Victor and Camp Greylock, that gave me some credibility. Once I'd spoken with a few men, that's when I took the story to ESPN and got partnered with Mark. We took our first reporting trip in the fall of 2018, just as the blog was really exploding, right when more and more guys were becoming aware of each other. We'd been struggling to find out anything about Conrad's personal life, so we went to England to see his hometown, the city of Leicester. We dug through newspaper archives and found a hometown hero story about him going to the 76 Olympics. We saw the house where he grew up, and we went to the track where he trained his earliest squad members. One of them was a man named Vernon Sharples, the guy who posted on the blog about being abused when he was 16. We spent a few days with him. I can't believe how naive I was looking back. I can't, I can't even fathom it out myself, really. The effects of this, it ripples out into almost every relationship you have in, in ways you would never imagine. Um, apart from putting a huge strain on my relationships with my family, my mother and father, you, you know, it impacts on, on your intimacy, you know, with your own child. Um, and, you know, and, and it just screws everything up, doesn't it? We went to the East Coast to meet other alleged victims, to Portland, Maine, and Syracuse, New York. We went to a couple towns in Connecticut and a tiny farming community deep in eastern Pennsylvania. And everywhere we went, these men were eager to talk with us. We met Robert Bender, the Syracuse student we introduced you to in the last episode. Robert described the lasting impact this has had on his intimate relationships. You know, when people go through this, the, the trauma of this experience with him, that it, um, it's so, like, unless somebody can reach them quickly, um, it just gets hidden because everyone's so ashamed. It took me, like, a long time to, like, not have such, you know, walls around me. Another man, David Allenson, 
described how Conrad abused him several times one summer at Camp Greylock, including in his bunk, just a few feet away from the other campers. David talked about the shame and fear and confusion that consumed him for years and his lifelong battle with alcoholism. He explained how jarring it was when he finally confronted the truth. The world isn't what you thought it was. The world is a bad place. And um, it's kind of like losing your innocence, I guess is the best way I can give it. And, um, and I was very confused and didn't know what the world was about anymore. And does this happen to everyone? Am I the only one? You know, um, how do I get out of this? You know, who are these people? These are monsters. Michael Waxman, the lawyer from Maine, told us how broken he felt as he got older and began to confront the past. The most lasting and biggest impact is something that I've only realized in the last five or six years and I've really done a lot of work with has been this, this self-doubt. The biggest piece is this feeling that there's something wrong with me, you know, that, that I'm damaged goods, um, that I'm defective somehow. Um, that, that piece is like a virus, and you can't even imagine, you wouldn't want to be in my head at the time, because the things I'm saying to myself all the time now are, you're defective, you're not a man, that's why you're getting divorced, it's your fault, no one's ever going to love you. Two men we talked to said that right after they found the blog, they went looking for Conrad's number. They found it and confronted him over the phone. One of those men shared his journal with us. He'd taken detailed notes after the call, notes that reflected Conrad's own words. This might not sound like a big deal, but by this point, we'd heard so many accounts of this elusive figure, yet nothing from Conrad himself. And even though this was secondhand, it felt like we were getting a peek inside his head. One part really stood out. Conrad told this man, there was no logic to any of it. It was stupid. It was wrong. Everything I was doing was about control. The other man said Conrad told him he'd stopped. Yet, we spoke with men who say Conrad abused them after those phone calls. In all, we found nine men who said they were abused at Camp Greylock, 22 from Syracuse, another three at Colgate, three at Caltech, and 15 in the Los Angeles area. That's 52 so far. But through all of our interviews, there was one man in particular we really wanted to meet. You've already heard David O'Boyle's story of abuse, how Conrad groped him and others at the UCLA track in the mid-2000s. But we'd heard that David's story had much more to it. So we were thrilled when he finally agreed to meet us. David told us that a decade after being abused by Conrad, He'd Googled his former coach. And like so many other squad members, he'd discovered Tim's blog. I was pretty angry. I was pretty upset that I got pretty worked up that this guy was a child molester. And so I, I made it up in my mind that I was going to go to the track and blow up this whole idea of, of him groping the athletes while he's stretching them out as a normal thing and just expose him in front of everybody. Two days later, David got up early and made the 45-minute drive to Drake Stadium. When he got there, he saw Conrad and walked across the field, straight for him. He pulled out his phone and hit record. How do you do it? How do you get these boys to believe in you so much? How do you get them to trust you? You're not doing this anymore. It's over for you. We couldn't believe it. Here was Conrad in 2016, 
being confronted by an accuser on tape. The video was powerful and it was a huge boost to our reporting. And soon, it would be our turn to confront Conrad. Mr. Manwaring, Mr. Manwaring, my name is Mark Fainaruwada. I'm a reporter at ESPN. That's next time on The Running Man. If you're a victim of sexual abuse and are looking for help, call RAIN, the Rape, Abuse, and Incest National Network. The number for their 24-hour helpline is 1-800-656-HOPE. That's 1-800-656-4673.